Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi everyone, my name is Armani Donahue and I'm the program coordinator of the African American Black Student Success Center. Today we're going to be talking about racial battle fatigue and this was an event co-sponsored by Student Involvement and the African American Black Student Success Center. This conversation started by Kristen Roberson, the leadership and development coordinator for Student Involvement. Um, she had come across a video of Evelyn from the internet, she's actually here with us today, and this was the video that we have just actually watched as a group right now. Uh, this event was started because Kristen saw this video calling in black by Evelyn from the Internet, and she had sent it over to me. We talked about it, and now we are here today. So I also now want to introduce our moderator. Her name is Asia Evelyn. She is an involved student leader here at San Jose State, and I've seen her come in and grow ever since she's been here. So um, with, further, with nothing further to do, let's go ahead and welcome Asia Evelyn. So today we've had the opportunity to have a wonderful, amazing panel, and I'm going to go on to introduce them. So the first person we have today is Mr. Milan Ballington. He is the director of the African American Community Service Agency. <laughs> um, and then the next person will be Dr. Theodora Berry from the, she's a <laughs> department chair of the AFAM department. And the last person will be Miss Evelyn from the Internet. I know I just gave like a brief um, introduction of the panelists, but would you all like to, um, you know, go into more detail about like what you do, where you come from, who you are? <coughs> we can start anywhere. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> hi, y'all. My name is Evelyn. I am an Austin, Texas-based video producer um, and internet personality. My YouTube channel is called Evelyn from the Internet, and I talk about black stuff <laughs> um, and in all its in all its facets so black woman um, my parents are immigrants so I talk about all the funny stories that come out of that and this video was my take on trying to find the humor in something really painful so I am Dr. Theodora Berry, Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies here at San Jose State University. Um, it is a pleasure to be here with all of you this afternoon. Uh, my work primarily focuses on the use of critical race theory and critical race feminism for the examination of the experiences, of, the lived experiences of black women, particularly uh, on college campuses as both students and as college professors. Um, and I also do work in curriculum studies, looking at the ways in which black curriculum orientations and black knowledge um, have been uh, erased in some instances or left absent in this notion of what knowledge is most worth knowing. Uh, my name is Milan Ballantin and I'm an alum of San Jose State University. Uh, I am the executive director of the African American Community Service Agency which is about six blocks from the university uh, and I basically help to translate a lot of things to people who don't look like us to make sure that we get the things that we need because oftentimes they don't know how to understand uh, what we experience and when I say we I'm speaking from zero to five all the way to our eldest and our uh, agency is a hundred years old and so I listen to her as well as I see the development of our young children and then being an alum from the university I keep my ears to what's going on here because I'm still paying for stuff I know I walked in I was like where's the restroom this did not look like this of course when I started college here almost 18 years ago it's been a while uh, so I uh, come from the perspective of the community, speaking with government um, and speaking with corporations and those who are in uh, black professional groups at some of the top companies. I have uh, very uh, great ties with some of the people who work behind the scenes. And then again, as I said, dealing with everyday racial matters that happen uh, and 
trying to connect uh, our community to uh, services such as mental health or black mental health. There's a department here in Santa Clara County, if you didn't know, and so from that lens. Thank you all for sharing. So the topic for today is racial battle fatigue and what it is, it's a psychological concept that was originally coined in 2003 as a theoretical framework to explain the social and psychological stress responses from being an African-American person on a historically white campus. So, um, and it's also related to, they related to um, PTSD, like with dealing with discrimination from like a lot of different spaces that you're usually a part of. So, um, is that definition okay? Does anyone want to go any deeper? Dr. Barry? <laughs> I wouldn't be the one. So. <laughs> Okay, so um, racial battle fatigue actually was introduced through a, a chapter in this book called A Long Way to Go, Conversations About Race by African-American faculty and graduate students, edited by a colleague and friend, fellow Philadelphian, Daryl Cleveland. Um, and the chapter that uh, uh, addresses this notion of racial battle fatigue, um, and I'm just going to find the name of the chapter, but there's a piece in here I want to actually read that highlights um, specifically uh, the definition that was put forward by the author, um, William A. Smith, who is a faculty member at the University of Utah. Um, the name of the chapter is entitled Black Faculty Coping with Racial Battle Fatigue, the Campus Racial Climate in a Post-Civil Rights Era. And... On page 180 of this text, um, Smith uh, talks about racial battle fatigue in this way. He says, racial battle fatigue develops in African-Americans and other people of color, much like combat fatigue in military personnel, even when they are not under direct racial attack. Unlike typical occupational stress, racial battle fatigue is a response to the distressing mental slash emotional conditions that result from facing racism daily. For example, racial slights, recurrent indignities and irritations, unfair treatments, including contentious classrooms and potential threats or dangers under tough to violent and even life-threatening conditions. U.S. Department of the Army, um, uh, inc includes information about a growing body of literature suggests that stress-related diseases result from the fact that African Americans have to keep activated a physiological response originally evolved for responding to acute physical emergencies, but now switched on constantly to cope with chronic racial microaggressions, macroaggressions. Um, and so that's, and he talks further about what that looks like in the college classroom, providing an example, um, stating to extend this metaphor, the college classroom is often a racial theater of contentious, racially primed white students positioned to unleash their racial weapons read discourse and attitudes of destruction. African-American professors and other faculty of color are often on the front lines of race in the crosshair focus of racial backlash from uneasy white students semester after semester without appropriate protection and assistance. Thank you, Dr. Barry, for that. Okay. So before we really get into like the depths of like the conversation that we're gonna have, um, so Ms. Evelyn, my first question is for you. Uh, so you're you consider yourself like a fun employed creative. So I just want to know like what that means and like how did you get to that place? Okay, so um, I worked at my background is in journalism. LOL, couldn't find a job. <laughs> then I worked in advertising, <laughs> um, and so I did that for a couple years, working at an agency and. I dealt with those things that are in the book, like the slights, um, being pitted against another coworker, uh, and then we talked to each other and we're like, oh, what we're friends. Um, so after years of being there, I decided it was time for me 
to go out on my own. I was I had my side hustles of like being on the internet and speaking and producing videos for other people on the side. So I figured it's time for me to go out on my own. But before I did that, I wanted to take a gap year. And you know, I see the British people do it, so I'm like, hey, maybe I can do it too. And I, you know, saved up my money and I said I'm gonna give myself a year off from working. And so I called that being fun employed being unemployed on purpose <laughs> and so that's what I had been doing for all of 2018 and so I took that time to be creative learn skills that have nothing to do with making money um, go back to the things that I felt that I couldn't do or didn't have time for because I worked at an agency and if any of y'all work at an agency or will work it's rough so um, yeah, so that's what I did for 2018. And in 2019, I am no longer fun employed. I am happily employed, um, but I am a contract worker and I co-host and co-write a show for PBS Digital called Say It Loud. And it's a show about black cultures and identities. Thank you for sharing. So Dr. Barry Milan, I would like to ask you the same question, but in a different way. So have you ever had a moment in your careers before you settled into your current positions where you would consider yourself fun employed? <laughs> I want to make sure I heard the definition though. That was doing something fun outside of what I normally would do, correct? Um, well, for me, it's when you're unemployed on purpose, taking time off. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that chance, <laughs> but it does sound fun. <laughs> um, I had not, I've not had that experience, but from her definition, I think it, allowed, it would have allowed me probably to see some other things. Um, In a land far away, long, long time ago, I did that. Um, I actually started my um, professional career right out of college in student affairs and did that for three years and was dealing with some of the microaggressions, working with a lot of white people who wanted my face in the place but didn't want me to really say anything. And I left a job on purpose and was like, you know, mm, no, I'm not doing this. I, this is not what I want to do anymore. So um, took a year where I just made the decision that um, I would just do whatever it was I felt like doing, make sure I made just enough money to pay the rent because my car, ideal, fortunately, was paid for and traveled up and down the East Coast visiting friends and family members and people were like, oh, so what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> what do you mean you're not doing anything? I do a little bit of temp work every once in a while and I'm here hanging out with you. <laughs> <laughs> because at some point you figure out that you don't have the skill set to deal with the craziness that's going on and you need a minute to figure it out and figure out what your next move is going to be and how you're going to navigate that. So I, I went there for a minute. We got it, we got it worked out. Okay, so now I want to go into your YouTube video. Um, everyone just watched it before um, we started. So the title of the video is Calling in Black. And a lot of the times, I think we can all agree that we all kind of feel this way, but I just never knew what to call it. So thank you for putting a name on it. And then um, I also want to ask you, like, what was like your thought process behind it? I know that you mentioned like all the microaggressions that you were going through and like everything that you faced like working in the space that you were working in. So I just want to know like, but how did you get to like calling in black specifically? Yeah. So um, it actually was tied to the name. Mm. So I made it to 2015. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, about two and a half hours from Waller County. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was, was it the summer of, in 2015. And I'm at work, and I'm reading the news about Sandra Bland. She lives in the South. I live in the South. She's a black woman. I'm a black woman. And that was the first time 
where I really saw myself in the news like that. And so I was at work, you know, at my cubicle, and I just feel a little something coming on. And so I go to the bathroom and I have my first panic attack. And so I was like, whoa. I, I realized that I was experiencing like a true fight or flight response. And I was like, I want to run out the building, but I want to lay down on the floor, but it's the bathroom, so mm, mm, I'm going to chill on that. Um, I want to leave, but I don't want to get fired. So like, what do I do? And I wish I could have just taken not even a full day, like maybe an hour or two to like breathe, you know? Um, and so, you know, I splash a piece of water or whatever, and I walk out and the whole office is fine while my world is falling apart. And so it took me a couple months to turn that experience into the video. Mm -hmm. And so I made this video for the website for Harriet, which is like a black culture, black women specific website. And they had reached out to me and asked me to make a video and I hadn't contacted them for months and I had nothing. And so when, when I experienced this, I was like, oh, now I know what I want my video to be about. I'm gonna make it about what it feels like like, uh, we don't have a, an excuse ready, mm -hmm. like a reason. There's no doctor's note. And it's like, but this is real. Like, I had a real physiological response to this event in the news. And so that's where the video came out. Thank you. So, <laughs> Dr. Barry and Mr. Milan, um, have you all ever had, like, this instance of calling in black? And what was, like, one of the instances where you felt this way? You know, I wish I knew you were in Texas while I was there. And I, because I had the same exact experience compounded by the fact that UT system had just passed a policy. Um, and actually, it wasn't just the UT system, it was the state of Texas had just passed a policy over the summer. They actually passed two uh, laws, the first of which was the open carry law, yeah. right? And so now in Texas, anybody can carry a gun anywhere unless that particular establishment posts a particular sign saying that weapons are not permitted in this particular establishment. And at the same time, they passed a law that allowed college students <clears throat> at public institutions to carry weapons on campus. And this is shortly after Sandra Bland is murdered. And I was already having a conniption fit and had threatened to quit my job when she was murdered because I knew this law was coming and told my department chair, I had just taken the job as associate dean in the graduate school, told my dean, I'm like, I'm done. I'm getting the hell out of Texas. These people are not gonna kill me. And I created such a ruckus on my campus to the point where they sent the chief of police to come talk to me. They sent the provost to come talk to me. They sent in all these people, please, Dr. Barry, don't leave. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm sorry, that's somebody trying to talk to me. I'm not trying to talk to them, but anyway. But I, I was like, no, I've had enough. My, I felt like my life was in danger and I'm not doing this. And for a week, I did not show up on campus. People are emailing me, are you having class? No, class is canceled. Don't think that's gonna happen, y'all. <laughs> just, just take that out your mind, okay? People are like, we're having meetings. I'm not coming, send me the notes. I called in for a whole week, did not show up, and dared somebody to say something to me. I would have to associate this with probably two things. Uh, one, I call it the Obama syndrome, where everybody thinks because you wear a suit that you are going to show up like President Obama. Oh, Lord. Trayvon Martin uh, was killed, and to have to show up as the African American Community Service Agency Executive Director to work that day, I'm carrying on one shoulder the ails of the community. On another side of my shoulder, I'm, I'm concerned about what I feel as a black man, and I have siblings that are younger than me, and it could have been any one of us. Uh, particularly working in my environment, I'm often the leader of the organization that's being called to multiple tables, and I try to encourage them to reach out to other black male leaders who, don't, who they don't always see. 
And so during that time frame when the case and everything was going on and you're evaluating how is this going to come out, but you already know how it's going to come out, and you're trying to decide every day actually during, that, the, during the, uh, Trayvon Martin case uh, how to show up, I had to really depend on my ancestors because what I felt inside as a leader was I don't want to put on my, my, my suit, I don't want to go into work, I don't want to even talk to anybody that's family included because I needed to process uh, for myself and uh, we know all of the names and so as it continuously happened I continuously had to fight that battle on my own but as well as seek uh, some form of uh, mental health guidance because I'm supposed to show up as a leader and kind of encourage you to be strong during the same time. And people were reaching out to the agency asking us, could we host something? Could we host a healing circle? Could we do that? So I really had to kind of get myself in alignment. Uh, first, I remember waking up that morning and I pulled the covers from over my face and I said, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to sit around and hear that you know, this is going to be tossed out the window as several cases that we have seen uh, be done. So, uh, and, and when I say the Obama, it's because in society they see him as a comfortable black person to talk to or look at. But when you grow up in Baby Hunter's Point, where I grew up at, and you see the things that happen to African Americans uh, all the time in our own neighborhood, and then you grow up and become a professional, you get college educated, and you see that it's still happening but on a different level. Uh, but people don't want to go talk to your people in in their comfort zone in their neighborhoods, uh, but they'll talk to you to go talk to them. It puts a lot of pressure on your black leaders, your black educators, your black professors, your black counselors, people who have to bear the weight of the whole community. Uh, it takes a lot for us to get out of the bed. And so when we talk about Harriet Tubman, um, I look at her as the one person that um, always go forward but always go back and get more and pull them through. So she was the one that got me out of bed because of what she did then and what she had to go through, I knew as a leader I had to go forward by looking at what she did on behalf of us, because if she didn't, then I probably wouldn't be sitting here. So um, there are many times when I feel the effects of like racial battle fatigue um, as being a student on this campus and having to like go to work, you know, be a part of like organizations, go to your classes. So how do we as students navigate through all of these spaces when we don't have folks who look like us, who are our professors, who are our bosses, and that just don't understand. So kind of uh, what we did when I was initially on campus, I know the black population has changed on campus multiple times. If you don't know, the population of African Americans at San Jose State actually reflects the population of African Americans in the city of San Jose. Uh, there are 31,000 African Americans in the city of San Jose and what here roughly under are around a thousand and something plus African Americans. Uh, when we were on campus, uh, I, when I moved here from San Francisco, I was a part of the EOP program, um, and I just started to identify black organizations, so the BSU, uh, and then I joined, um, became a member of Kappa Alpha Psi, and I was also part of the President's Council. But what my fraternity was doing at the time, and the BSU, and the 100 Black Men, the 100 Black Men has a chapter, I don't know if it's still active on campus, but I was the first chapter president here, we made it a point to start identifying leaders on campus, but then the African American Resource Center that we had on campus with Nahanda Amara and a lot of them that existed at that time would kind of observe us and push us towards the tables, and they wouldn't let us just kind of go to the wayside and not be at the table. And so a lot of times we were leaning on professors as well as counselors to continue to keep us motivated. But as young people, we would challenge the status quo. What we understand, understood was the money that we were paying the university made us investors and that we had power. So on the President's Council, we would advocate for things that we wanted to see on campus. For example, I know you guys don't have parties on campus anymore. Well, you pay fees to the student union to host events in the student union. So back then, we, uh, in partnership, Cap Alpha Psi in partnership with Delta Sigma Theta put on a um, crimson and cream ball. Uh, there was a lady who took our application and she didn't know we were sit on the other side of the uh, uh, partition. And so she said, um, she was whispering, she was like, what is a suited and booted contest? Now, she was asking somebody else these questions and not us. They denied us to host the ball. So what we did being trained in college fraternities and sororities was we put on our suits, the Deltas put on their professional wear as they do, our pins, and we had a meeting with the board of the student union and talk to them about our business plan, 
how it was going to have an impact on the university, how are we going to bring security on campus, and we got a unanimous vote to make sure that we had that Crimson and Cream Ball because it was to raise funds in a, uh, for sickle cell, which impacts African Americans. So we linked to each other on this campus, but we also knew that we were still fighting a battle because in most of our classes it was 1 to 30. Uh, for example, when Hurricane Katrina happened, the professor brought it up in class and they all turned and looked at me. And here I am being a spokesperson on behalf of the community, but when I left that class, I felt drained. I felt somewhat used, like they should have went to go do research on my community and how could they help. But then again, that's where I went back to my counselors and people on campus uh, or the counseling department, which I have visited multiple times. Being that when I, was, uh, when I first started college here, uh, when you come from a home and you have a parent that's addicted on drugs and you're not really in the classroom, uh, I have a mother who is a recovering addict, 10, 15 years clean sober, right? But at that time in my early stages of college, I was battling what was going on at home what was going on in the classroom, what was going on in developing being a young black male uh, in a lot of instances. And then in the BSU, there's overrepresentation of black women, which is great, powerful. But if I can't also look next to me and see another brother that's helping to lead the cause with the sisters on campus, there's an additional pressure that comes with being black from my own people as well as those who are not looking like me. So oftentimes you have to go back to our advisors the counselors, as I mentioned, to continue to push and educate us to stay within the fight of being black on San Jose State campus. And then this campus has a history of just leaders throughout the decades. So if you look around or if you do your research, of course, you'll find other motivational moments to know that at San Jose State you can go through. Uh, Dr. Milner, who um, I had him uh, as a professor. Uh, my stepmother had him as a professor. So he was one of my many, uh, I wouldn't say so much as idol, but one of the professors that would call my name when I'm walking down past the union and I'm looking, trying to find who was it, but I knew it was his voice uh, to encourage me to go forward. So I think we have to become, what I did back then was learn to become vulnerable to those who I knew were on my side to keep me accountable for when I needed to show up on this campus because it can be hard when you're on a 31,000 student campus and you see yourself every so other day maybe unless you know where to go. We used to meet in the student union uh, around the table so the fraternities and sororities would come in there, the BSU, the uh, base would come in there. We would all be there at a certain time to kind of how's your classes going, what are you guys doing later on, okay we're going to go study here in the MLK library. So we created a community to keep focus and to keep going on campus. University of Texas at Austin, and it's a massive school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's a massive school, 50,000 students, um, just students, 50,000. And it fluctu the black population fluctuates anywhere from like 3% to 4%. Um, when I was uh, going there, it was maybe like 4.5. Um, so for us, space, like you mentioned, holding space for each other was very important. And so um, we had. And, and what I've noticed is that you can do things now to set up the next generation of students in this case for success. So the students from the 90s had set up and fought for the Malcolm X Lounge. And so it was just a room like this, just had the X Lounge, maybe some paintings on the wall, a couple couches. But that's like where we hung out. And it's a small population, so we could all fit in there. You know what I'm saying? And so like that's where we would do our homework late at night. It was one of the few places that was open super late. Um, I was the big chop queen. Girls would be like, hey, I'm going to go natural with my hair. And I'm like, yeah, meet me in the X Lounge. Bring your scissors. You know what I'm saying? Bring your curling creams, and I'll cut your hair. So holding space for each other um, was a really good way for us to let, let loose, you know, let our hair down or up, <laughs> um, and, and connect with each other in those times get tough. N equals one. Almost my entire career, I've been the N of one. And what that meant was that I had to get creative about how to survive in these spaces. And even as an undergrad, 
that my small state-funded public institution, mostly white students, in most of my classes, N equals one. And even on this campus, I am the only black department chair on this campus, with the only black dean on this campus. And so what that means is that I, had to, I have to always constantly figure out ways to ensure that both my physical and mental stability are in check. And that what that means is having groups of people to affiliate with, mostly outside of campus. So I got, I got my ride or die crew that I check in with via phone or Zoom or whatever. And I'm like, oof, I'm just tired, y'all. <laughs> right? And we all share in the kind of fatigue that we're experiencing in our spaces because, interestingly enough, on lots of college campuses, there are people like me who are the N of one. And so we've all come to kind of know each other. The other thing about that, too, is making sure I have time for myself. So one day not too long ago, about a week or two ago, Students are calling me about some event that's happening on campus, and they're like, Dr. Berry, why aren't you here? I'm like, I'm at home. I'm about to have dinner. I'm not thinking about any of you right now. I have mentally checked out. I will see you tomorrow, goodbye, click. And that's not to be rude, but that's to protect my sanity. That there's gotta be that space. So in addition to connecting with people, I also have to create space for myself. But finally, I have to say, the unexpected joy of this particular job has been my students. Folks come in my office in the afternoon, hey doc, what's going on, how you doing? What's it look like? What can we do to help you? That kind of bonding is significantly important to me to consistently remind me why I am here. So thanks, good people. I appreciate y'all. So um, Evelyn, how do you navigate through this fatigue as a social media influencer? Um, I know that things are like relative to one's own experience, but being that you know you are on social media maybe more than the average person, how does it like affect you? How do you disconnect from it? What do you do? Like you were saying, you definitely have to set up boundaries. So Twitter can like suck you in. And you don't necessarily learn much from Twitter other than what other people think, which isn't necessarily helpful to you at any given point in time. So um, logging off is something that I have to do a lot of the time. And also not um, being someone's spokesperson. So when this video came out, um, I got a lot of calls to talk on this show or that show. And so I took a few that seemed, you know, positive and just a few. And then the rest, I was like, it already exists. Like, the interview's already up. I don't need to keep talking about this thing that I just said was painful <laughs> if you watched the video. And so setting up those boundaries is really important for me um, and not getting swept into the whole social media activist Thing, um, and instead using my time to support people on the ground and do what they need me to do versus what media companies would like me to do to fill their, their interview time slot. Um, yeah, thank you. So um, earlier you mentioned the death of, the murder of Sandra Bland, and um, a lot of times now on social media we get all of these images um, and it can be really, really hard to process. So I just want to know, and it can also be toxic and it can also d diminish our morale as like students. So um, my question to all of you is how do we keep continue fighting? Um, and then how do you all succeed in ignoring or um, putting up a blinder like in your daily lives to like a lot of things that are going on in our community? I think it's a couple of things. How many of you by a show of hands are part of organizations on campus? Raise them high. Okay, so organiz I mean, the, if we look back at what they did during the civil rights era and the Montgomery bus boycott, what did they do pretty much was organize. 
And a lot of times organizations, we're all created with missions and to-do lists and tasks. But what I used to say on campus was, I mean, when you met me on campus, I had flyers from every organization because I wanted us to go support each other. So I didn't care if it was a Sigma, a Q, we're supposed to support these black organizations whose mission are to elevate the black community and get us connected. So we have to go to our presidents of our organizations and leadership and say, are we supporting this organization? Can we send two members to their meetings if they are open? And then what is the whole agenda for all of us? Because if the agenda for you is to do something powerful on campus and everybody has it as a unified and has agreed to do it collectively, you'll have more of an impact, which is how this success center came about. I remember they were calling like, Milan, we need you to show up on campus on this day. Milan called 15 other alumni or more and said the students need you to show up on this day because they were organizing to get the success center. I think that was around Gary, Gary Daniels time frame when he was president of AS and probably before that. So organizing and asking all presidents of organizations, and I remember where Amani was president of VSU. Uh, I've been watching every president of VSU and supporting. We have to remember, I'm not here by myself. Somebody came before me. And you do not have to be a president of an organization to have influence. You just have to be a conscious member and get your president on board with what we need to do as a collective community. Also, partnerships. If we're not the majority on campus, then we need to talk to the communities that are. What does that mean? The African American Community Service Agency, for those of you who have volunteered at the agency before all of the renovations, there were people who learned about my passion and what the black community was going through because I was vulnerable to tell them. So from the Asian community, uh, Anthony Lynn, who uh, sits with people of power, met with the Golden State Warriors and told them about our agency. They would have never come down, in my opinion, had I not had that connection. Um, he told them about us. They came to see us. They spent over 75000 with renovating the INSC Jackson Library based on him going to speak on behalf of the African-American community. Um, our AACSA Leadership Academy through AT&T. Anthony also connected me to Angela Kung, who is from the Asian community, who sits at the table. She met with me, saw my passion for my community. They gave us the funding that I requested for our leadership academy. So we also have to consider going and educating our brothers and sisters from other racial backgrounds to be able to know what we're trying to accomplish because they're sitting in rooms and spaces that we are not always at the table. Uh, the mayor of San Jose, whom is not African American, uh, but I do speak to him often about what we need to do in the community which helped me leverage the $300,000 that we got last year to renovate our building. So we have to organize as a community, check ourselves on some of the biases that we have against other communities, create and uh, eliminate vulner uh, our fear of going to talk to somebody who doesn't look like us to ask them to also speak up for us in a room that we know that they are in. And then also continue to invite them to the things that we do in our spaces to learn about us. There are sacred spaces that we have where we can talk to one another, uh, but we also need to invite them to organizational things that we do. Um, blinders, I don't really know how I can say blinders because I know when I'm called on often and all the time, I told people it's a bad time to do anything during Black History Month because every day there's a program, every day there's an event, and when I say uh, that, I mean outside of making sure that we celebrate who, our, who we are, reminding the general public. So every day I've been going to events, making sure that we are at the table, if it's something that's with our community or something at a major corporation because I can't really put on any blinders when it comes to my people. If I do, we might miss that great opportunity. Um, and so hearing what Dr. Berry said, which I'm gonna lean on, that that's wisdom to know when to say, this is my personal space. I haven't learned that yet because if people call me at 2 a.m., 1 a.m., I'm like, I'm there for you as best as I can be because I know what it feels like to not have somebody there, uh, if I can say that. So I probably need to practice a little bit of that uh, personal space. Okay, we're going to get some more mentorship going on here. All right, we'll pass the mic. I mean, I don't think I have any blinders to the actual issues um, affecting us. The only blinders I have are to the opinions, which because of social media, the, the two were kind of made to blur together, and so you have to take some time to sift that out. Um, and so what has helped me is instead of taking everything and um, reacting to it, what I do instead is say, okay, I'm going to 
instead of being reactionary, I'm going to just ask someone else, how can I be of service? And that shift in my brain has helped me to focus on providing something that someone needs versus how many tweets can I fire off using this, this hashtag. And so service is what can kind of reframe and reshift that mindset. Battle fatigue is said to be similar to that of PTSD. So I just wanted to know, like, how have you all seen these behaviors come out in the spaces that you all are a part of? For me, it was that initial panic attack that I had at work. Um, but it also has expressed itself in myself and my friends in just, like, not wanting to leave the house or not wanting to talk about anything or um, disconnecting and... Um, whether it's disconnecting from social media or disconnecting from your friends in real life. So I've seen that distance. Um, I've seen people not be able to get out of bed um, and not just want to you know, meet and come together with people. So that's, those are the symptoms that I've seen. For me, it was first with the murder of Trayvon Martin. I was living in Georgia at the time and my godson was living with me. He was 15 and from Chicago, where seeing black people die was not shocking to him because of a lot of the violence that happens in Chicago. And so having to have a conversation with him about why this was significant and different from what he had experienced um, and why people were protesting and marching, especially since we've lived two hours from Orlando in Georgia. And so we would drive down, hang out at Universal Studios, whatnot, and he's trying to figure out why is this meaningful? And then subsequently with my reaction to the murder of Sandra Bland, and part of the reason why I took her murder so viscerally was the fact that I knew Sandra Bland. She and I both served in the Chicago chapter of the NPHC when I was doing my postdoc in Chicago. She was very involved in the community, very involved with the church, and was surprised to learn that she had made the decision to move to Texas to, her, to take a job at her alma mater um, and leave <coughs> Chicago, because a lot of Chicago folks don't leave Chicago. And that's a Chicago thing, and so <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even unpack that. But subsequently, what I have had to do since then was help my students from undergrads to doctoral students figure out how to process some of this based on my own understandings of how I processed all of this. And first and foremost is to be honest about what you're feeling about what has transpired. Some folks just don't want to talk about these things because they are painful. But holding in that kind of pain is toxic and it's only hurting you. But then subsequently to be able to talk to people you trust who can be sympathetic to what you're feeling and how you're understanding what has transpired so that it doesn't become normative. Because unfortunately, now we've got people who sort of feel like, okay, another black person got shot. It's kind of like watching a video game, like it's become normal. And we, we've got to avoid that kind of situation because otherwise then we can't be responsive in a constructive way and do the kind of work that Milan is doing to help support each other within community and figuring out how to do something constructive to deal with these kinds of issues. So th that's my two cents. Uh, at the African American Center, we had an uptick of uh, biracial uh, children parents bringing their children to the agency asking for them to learn about methods and ways to uh, behave or act in classrooms so that they wouldn't, what was happening a lot on the news was things have been coming out about children who were either ostracized in classrooms or being treated differently. And so parents were coming in who either had adopted kids uh, that they did not have a connection to their black background to educate them on how to uh, protect themselves or maybe engage with those of authority. Uh, we also saw an increase of requests for uh, mental health counselors uh, during the time frames of several of the murders uh, that was taking place. And so 
it has a similarity very much because it's a tra it's traumatic when we see these things. I mean, you can just turn on the news in general and be traumatized after watching the news in current date society. So dealing with a racial matter uh, is even worse because it's still in the back of our heads when we are in places. Um, I even sit in some venues with my, I never sit in venues with my back to the door, uh, which my parents had always taught me, but it became more relevant now with society. Like I have to be conscious of where I'm sitting. I have to be conscious more about when I go out with my friends and am I in a safe environment based on a lot of the racial events that have happened towards African-Americans um, or even, it was one uh, man who was going around looking for black men to shoot one day. And when I heard that, I'm just like, this world is going completely left. But how do I manage and how do I self-deal? And then how do I get that information out to my uh, either followers on social media and or to the communities that we belong to through the African-American Community Service Agency? So this is going to be our last question before we move into the Q&A section. So when would you all say that racial battle fatigue actually begins? And how does one know if they have racial battle fatigue? Unfortunately, I, I think that you only know once it has come to a boiling point that you weren't aware existed until it happens. Um, and that's unfortunate, and, and I want to figure out ways to avoid that, um, to kind of slow, slow the process down or nip it in the bud before it starts or whatever. But um, I think that's... That's when it begins. It begins when you haven't um, shared your feelings and you haven't been vulnerable with people about what you're feeling and how it affects you. Um, because a lot of times, not only do we feel bad about something, but sometimes we feel bad for feeling bad. So then it's like this weird cycle, like shame circle of, of emotions. And so, yeah, I just, I think that's how it begins. What was the second that? Uh, how does one know they have racial battle fatigue? I think it all comes down to what have noticing patterns in yourself. So what have you avoided? Have you avoided going somewhere? Have you avoided talking to someone? Have you avoided um, speaking about something? And if you notice those patterns for enough time, then you can pinpoint that as racial battle fatigue. I think part of it begins also in the recognition or the awareness that certain situations are causing you to react or respond differently than you normally would. So for instance, if there's a particular class that you just dread going to, knowing, not necessarily knowing why specifically, but there's this constant dread in, in relationship to that. If there are particular issues you don't want to talk about. Um, and it also manifests itself physiologically. And this is one of the things that Dr. Smith talks about in his piece. You know, some things that we start to notice that happen to our bodies. If you get a headache at certain times of the day or upset stomach, if you're stressed around something or if you become combative with people, um, there are people, I, I have a colleague of mine who was under such stress around racial battle fatigue, she started losing her hair. You know, and I remember seeing her one day and she was wearing this really fly wig, but I was like, hey, what's going on? She's like, <laughs> she's like, yeah, I'm losing my hair. I was like, what? I, I, mean, I honestly did not know even how to respond to that. But then when she started telling me about some of the, the racial in, insults and injuries and that she was dealing with and microaggression she was dealing with every day, she was really suffering from what Smith talks about in his notions of racial battle fatigue. And so you also have to pay attention to that. Are you sleeping enough or are you sleeping too much, right? Are you nervous in certain kinds of situations? All, all Singularly, these things may not mean anything, but cumulatively, your body is trying to tell you something and you have to pay attention to that. I believe it begins when you are kind of like Fannie Mae said, uh, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Like you'll respond to something that you see on social media or you respond to something that you see on the news and you will end up either mentally saying like this again, that again. I think that's when you first really uh, identify. And then to know when you are done with it, I, I, don't, think, uh, I don't think that's even possible. 
Uh, my grandmother is 81. I call her one of my board of directors. And when I talk to her every day, if she's not uh, giving me her point of view as an elderly African-American woman and her experience in this country, she's still talking about things that are continuously happening to us. Me being the younger grandson and active in the community, it's her advisement of like things that still need to be fixed that have not been fixed since she's been on earth. And so I think it does not go away. But some people uh, within our community, some, there are some African Americans that don't, that think that it doesn't exist because things have gotten better. And so we oftentimes have to challenge that status quo for them to be able to sit at the table to, again, bring us to the table to talk about the issues that they want. Uh, but I don't think it ever goes away. I think it kind of uh, subsides for a little bit and then something happens and that's when you see uh, us coming forward uh, as a community, collectively or individually. We work in this mic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for sharing. So my last question was originally, um, how do we come together as a community to combat racial battle fatigue? But like throughout the conversation, I know some of you all shared um, counseling, building community, and disconnecting. Do you all have anything else to add to that list of ways to combat racial battle fatigue? Music. <laughs> I think sometimes when I turn on some old hits, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, classical music. My grandmother raised me, so she, <laughs> she got me in line on some of that music. Um, music, uh, sometimes when I'm stressed, I'll play jazz music or classical music to kind of calm my brain. I, I don't know how it came about, but that, that does it for me. Um, water, I usually get around water, something that's flowing and free to try to get me freed up. And then I'll sometimes call like a sibling or a best friend or somebody whom I trust in the community to ask them, you know, take my opinion on this or tell me, am I tripping? Uh, because I'm trusting them to tell me, no, you're not, that actually happened and this is what you need to do. Um, and also having mentors uh, as we say, mentors and sponsors are people that can hear what you have to say because a lot of people are walking around with nobody to talk to. Mm -hmm. So if you actually have people that you can call and talk to and be honest with, um, opens up the ability for you to release that pressure that's boiling inside of you. Um, and then uh, creating, again, those safe spaces that you can call uh, people up and be able to uh, express yourself as freely as you need to. And I can't stress enough the importance of taking care of the temple you call your body. Because racial battle fatigue not only attacks your mental psyche, it attacks your physical body. Drinking plenty of water, getting exercise, dancing, walking, all of those things help combat the kind of stress that racial battle fatigue takes on your body. So that's significantly important to do. And, and try not to do all that emotional eating chips. All, all these chip eaters, right? Cookie eaters. Sometimes that eating is, is that racial battle fatigue stress that you're dealing with. It's, it's not that you're really hungry, it's that you put up with a whole lot of foolishness in a given day and you grab the first thing you can put your hands on. Right? Instead of deciding to go for a walk or, or do something else to help deal with that stress. So, so do that. I'm a big fan of going outside. Um, Austin is great about having trees. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you just cut on some Chance the Rapper and go walk somewhere. Put your, leave your phone in the car. I won't make you with your ball. Um, but don't, you know, engage on social media. Don't try to Snapchat the trees. Just, you know, listen to music, take a walk, listen to the sounds, and let your mind wander. And usually if you don't know what's bothering you, if you give your mind the space to tell you, then you'll find out. And I think that's the first step. So now we're going to open it up for Q&A. So thank you to all of our wonderful panelists. battle fatigue and self-care, knowing all that we go through already, 
what is it that you all tell yourselves to strive for more? I mean, you're all up here because of not only being black, but what you've accomplished while being black. So, you know, like for Evelyn, like what made you, what did you have to tell yourself to take the leap from, you know, being Evelyn to being Evelyn from the internet? How did you push yourself to make your first YouTube video? How did Dr. Barry, how did you push mm -hmm. yourself to go after your doctorate online? How do you push yourself to, you know, do all you do for the agency? Valley. <laughs> I think for me it was getting and volunteering at the African American Center and seeing what state it was in and realizing and going to visit other if you ever go to the Jewish Community Center and you see it's this massive beautiful building uh, in Los Gatos you go over to the Asian Americans for Community Involvement Center in San Jose and you see it's a massive building and you also go over and see the Mexican Heritage Plaza and you see it's a massive, beautiful building. And at that time, I come back to the African American Center and I'm like, what in the world is going on? But what did my people do, right? 12 million slaves or 12 million kings and queens were put into slavery. Only 300 and about 80,000 of them made it. I'm sure I can do something. So that's what one of the things that I look at is that my people made it. And through all, what is it now? We're gonna be celebrating 400 years or recognizing 400 years since we've been in this country. And when they intended to use us and just kill us, it makes me realize that anything is possible, but I have to look at what did we do in order to know kind of what my footprint would be in this world. And so I come up with wild ideas that don't always make it. Uh, when I first got to the agency, people said, uh, we thought it was gonna close, these are people who were like watching it to close. They were not actually coming down to the agency. I didn't know how to write grants. I started learning how to write grants. I started observing other leaders and finding out how to show up in corporate boardrooms to get 50,000, 20,000, 5,000 here or there. And so I think we have to kind of look at w what our ancestors were doing, um, some of the ones that are still alive today, uh, shall I say and how did they start creating things and so when we now look at the agency and we walk in there we see intel renovated the computer lab creating access for young african americans or when we go into the golden state warriors room and to yesterday we actually held our first story time we had over 20 kids in that room reading and learning early literacy so i think for you all as students in your seats you're actually more powerful than you might know i think and i think if you start creating those vision boards and working towards your vision boards and getting with uh, good brother Akabundu here, Dr. Barry, your guides on campus and off campus to encourage and push you towards those dreams, you'll go very, very far. The short answer is that my parents would not have it any other way. We were never allowed to say can't in my household. And a college education was expected. I am a third generation college graduate. Um, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents immigrated to this country from the Caribbean for the sole purpose of being able to get an education. And so there weren't any options for me. There wasn't any other conversation being had in my household about expectations. And Despite the fact that I had a myriad of people while I was uh, still in school asking me, you still in school? What, I thought you graduated. You still in school? How long you been in school? When you gonna graduate? You still in school? I was like, man, yes, I'm still in school. And I never hesitated to think about what my next steps were gonna be. And I always surrounded myself with people who were positive, who were encouraging, who were supportive. And my father used to say, don't carry any negative dead weight. Don't associate yourself with people who don't want the best for you. And my goal has always been to pass that along to each and every one of the students I have had at every institution I have been and to encourage you as much as I could so that you would have the incentive to do the best that you could do.
need to come into it. So my parents instilled in me from an early age that whatever story you have is worth sharing. So whether that was them buying me a camera and like actually developing the photos, like spending money, driving to Walmart, developing the crappy photos when I was like six or seven years old, or you know them obliging me when I would say, okay, sit down, I'm gonna put on a play, and I'm the only character. Um, so they have instilled in me a sense of creativity, a sense of whatever is in my head is worth sharing. And so now, whether it's on YouTube or my background in journalism, through the reporting that I've done, um, and even in a, in a way through advertising, um, showing people that their story is also worth sharing, whatever that story might be. That's number one. And then number two, um, understanding that, like you said, everything I have directly or indirectly is because someone else kept going. So when I even think about, okay, my parents came to America, and here I am, so now the least I could do is like go to school, right? That's the very least I could do. And then even before that, the civil rights um, era and that legislation that black Americans fought for made it easier for black people from African nations to come to the United States in like the 70s and 80s. The 80s is when my dad came over here. And so without those people, my parents wouldn't even be able to be here and I wouldn't be where I was now. So understanding that everything has somebody who started it and who was up at 2 a.m. and was like, if not me, then who? Everybody has that. And so that's the way I show my thanks is by keep, I keep going. Still amazes me in uh, Home of Innovation with using <laughs> the same speaker we had in my fifth grade play. <laughs> I don't understand. Um, so I work here at Peer Connections. Uh, question from Michigan. So I was I went to University of, University of Michigan during like the affirmative action trial, and uh, we didn't have the words to put for what we were doing and knowing that. Racial bad critique was coined known to read while I was in college. It wouldn't help. But we always talk about issues race, microaggressions. It's very black and white, right? It's a very black and white kind of thing. White people do this, we feel this kind of thing. Um, and even when we talk about colleges, it's like HBCUs, PWI, HBCUs, PWI. Like we're not at either here at San Jose State. And so I'm wondering, as you think about like racial bad critique, does it show up differently being in a space where there are so many people of color, there are so many uh, different types of uh, ethnicities represented. So as black people here, it's not, we're not being always directly confronted with issues from white people in the same way. And with, so that's one question, do you feel like it shows up differently? And the second question is, do you think that, well, we recognize we're not in a post-racial society, but with the Bay Area being somewhat of a cultural bubble, do you think that causes people to respond differently to issues um, that might be looked at differently for someone like me in Texas mm -hmm. or someone from Michigan, someone like me from Michigan? Um, I think because of social media, and because of, uh, I mean, if you look at black music and black videos, right, we'll see other cultures and races maybe enjoying black music, which should be. But sometimes some things come up in those videos and lyrics that we'll see other cultures doing and we'll question, like, do they know the journey of why that's not appropriate, right? Um, so I think it does show up on a, on a campus like this because as we progress as society, it, is, it would appear on the lens, if you don't see anything that currently happened, that everything is okay. But internally, when you see it as an African-American, you're like, that's not okay. So uh, it does still happen on a campus like San Jose State. Um, and then your second question. I think so, I do. Uh, because typically with other cultures, because uh, we're not talking about the uh, white community, we're talking about like the campus predominantly uh, is, uh, Asian is what the number one, 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 right? So we're not actually going into the Asian community very much and talking to them about some of the things that their culture may find um, um, 
not as a, uh, a clear association with their community, but I mean, when, when I go to places and I'm hearing, you know, some of the music that we have played and I look around and I was like three of us in there, but the whole club is of every other culture. I'm not exactly stopping the DJ saying, maybe you should switch the song uh, because everybody here is lipping something that I'm sitting here going, oh, this is going, I'm not, I'm now not comfortable in a space, if, if you will. So, and that's in a good environment. Now, when we're talking about college campuses, it's, it still happens on campuses where you see it, but we're not actually inviting other cultures, uh, per se, in a larger number to the table. We're still talking about the black and white conversation that's still happening, but there are other cultures that are now coming into America whom have racial disparities in their own country when you're just darker. And here we are as African Americans still battling 400 years worth of issues, and now I gotta go educate other people from another community about what we've been battling here. So as a black leader in the community, we're still educating people across the board. Um, so that's kind of how it shows up uh, from my experience. Let me be clear, racial battle fatigue is the manifestation of insults and assaults and injuries placed on black people by society in certain kinds of situations. What causes it is built into the infrastructure of power. And so while we are not at a traditional PWI, colleges and universities were never designed for people of color, period. These were not places that were meant to uplift and provide enlightenment to any person of color, but the ways in which they are structured and the ways in which they operate are the same regardless of whether or not you add an anapesi, an HSI, an HBCU, or a traditional PWI. Those structures are still in place with minor exceptions. And the exceptions rest on who provides funding and resources to those institutions. So at private HBCUs or tribal colleges and even a handful of private HSIs where the monies are coming from within the community, those power structures don't exist the same way. But at every other institution, at the end of the day, because those power structures are wedded into those institutions, we're dealing with the kinds of insults and injuries that have been passed on generationally because of the explicit purpose of colleges and universities historically. Now that being said, does that mean that the Silicon Valley, the bastion of cultural diversity is immune from such foolishness? Absolutely not. I've been here only a minute, and I do mean a minute. And at the end of the day, while we can say that the student population is diverse, more than 50% of the faculty and administrators on this campus self-identify as white, and the historical founding of this institution is white. So guess what we have? Whiteness in power. Okay, well that concludes our events. Let's give a round of applause to our wonderful panelists. Thank you, Milan. Thank you, Dr. Barry. Thank you, Evelyn. We appreciate y'all. Listen, listen carefully.